Hi, this is Aurora from the Educating All Learners Alliance, and today we're talking with Jesse Brunken and Tiffany Galloway for a deeper dive with Blue Engine. Blue Engine is an organization that supports schools and districts to improve academic outcomes for all students, specifically students with disabilities and emergent multilingual learners who disproportionately identify as Black and Brown by supporting systems with core instruction in the inclusion setting. Joining us today is Blue Engine CEO, Jessie Brunken. She's been with Blue Engine for 10 years, where she leads on a range of roles on the program and comes to this work through the classroom and secondary math inclusion. We're also joined by Tiffany Galloway, the VP of Learning Design and Impact at Blue Engine. Tiffany is a veteran inclusive education practitioner with over 15 years of experience and comes to this work from a deep background in special education pedagogy and practice. Having served as a classroom teacher, an instructional coach, school leader, and district administrator. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the gaps in our current public education system, specifically when it comes to meeting the needs of diverse learners, and how this disproportionately impacts the felt educational experience of students who are historically marginalized. There are several levers to address this issue, and co-teaching is one of them. Thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the podcast. So let's dive right in. So as we know, Jessie was on our Five Minutes With series, and today she's back with Tiffany to talk about the current practices in our education system when it comes to meeting the needs of students of color with disabilities, how co-teaching can address some of these current barriers. So this work is very closely tied with the work that I do with ELA and the Educating All Learners Alliance. But when speaking with new folks, I always like to jump in with, you know, what's your personal connection to this conversation? Why is this important to you? I love that question, Aurora. We love to talk about the why at Blue Engine. So many connections for me to this work, but I think... On a personal level, what stands out the most to me is I actually identify as being part of the one in five. And that actually wouldn't become clear to me until my adult life. And so I spent a lot of time like thinking back to my K-12 and college experience. And what stands out the most to me is actually a feeling, the feeling of anxiety that I often had um, in classroom spaces. Um that I became really good at hiding and the feeling of just really struggling, but wanting so badly to be successful. And I often don't talk about this actually, because when I do bring it up, people's response is usually, but look how you turned out. So it's fine. Oh, it feels really invalidating. Um, but I'm trying to use my voice around this a little bit more. And for so long, I believed it was normal to feel an immense amount of anxiety. And so I show up to this work and think about this on a daily basis, just knowing that if we do our jobs well at Blue Engine, what it means is that greater numbers of students feel like what is normal is being themselves and having the support that allows them to feel comfortable and successful and challenged, of course, in classroom settings, but having teachers who believe it's their job to see and know and support them. And then on a professional level, as you mentioned, I was a middle school math inclusion teacher in the South Bronx earlier in my career. And that's where I first saw the compounding effects of race and socioeconomic status on neurodiversity and disability. 
I taught in a school where the average teacher tenure was probably about three to four years, and almost everyone had been alternatively certified. I was as well. And one of the impacts of that, of having such an under-experienced, under-prepared teaching workforce was that we truly didn't know in many cases what to do with neurodiversity. And it meant that kids who should have been included in the general education setting were often segregated and put into self-contained environments because teachers put up their hands and said, I, I don't know what to do. It must mean they need something different. They need, you know, more, more help is kind of what we what we would say. And so, you know, I am just here on a mission every day because of both my personal and professional experience. I often say that some of the manifestations of ADHD for me are my superpower. I have endless amounts of energy, urgency, enthusiasm around this um, and feel grateful to put that to work here and uh, work alongside people like Tiffany, who I learn from every day. So I'm eager to hear her personal why as well. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So much of what uh, Jesse shared so keenly resonates with me, with my own personal and professional experiences. So much of my um, my many intersections of my identity informs why I do this work and perhaps more importantly, how I go about doing this work. Similar to Jesse, um, I grew up in the inner city of Boston, a city well known for its challenges with diversity, equity and inclusion in the predominantly black neighborhood of Dorchester. It was very conscientious to say that in a non-Bostonian way. So throughout my K-12 experience, though, I attended Boston public schools and can like distinctly recall grappling with some really harsh truths about my own educational experience. Uh, within my family, education was centered as like this critical lever to access like the ever elusive American dream. So not dissimilar from other kids in my neighborhood. However, my parents would heavily emphasize the importance of me going to school, getting good grades and getting out, if you will, right, uh, to experience the things that they were unable to experience due to a range of issues, which can largely be attributed to systemic and structural oppression, more on that, uh, another combo for another day, for sure. And so I had this image and this mantra that was like consistently at play in my head uh, when I engaged with school. One being like, be the best, right? You got to be the best always, which I internalized as like, be perfect, right? Like be the best means be perfect. And, and then the secondary point is like this idea of like anything short of the best will reduce your chances of quote unquote making it. Right. So you talk about pressure, right? That's a lot of pressure for your entire K-12 experience. And similar to Jesse, again, like what I learned as I navigated schooling, I found it to be equally as important, if not more important uh, than the content was the task about like internalizing how to actually hide, how to float under the radar, how to build a bank of coping mechanisms to make school work for me and to meet the approval of like my folks, right? Because what I would learn later in life, in my mid thirties, <laughs> like Jesse, is that I sit squarely with my people, the one in five, of one in five people in this country that are diagnosed with learning and attention issues. Again, like in my mid thirties, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I couldn't help but think about like how my schooling experiences may or may not have looked differently for me, right? Um, growing up in the nineties, early 2000s for me, there wasn't this notion of like including kiddos who were different. So if that was publicized, then would I have not been tracked into, you know, more prestigious or advanced work classes or AP classes and things of that nature. 
If I am honest, I'm not sure that the learning environments were honestly really super designed well to address learner complexities at that time. And then professionally, I'm connected to this work because I spent the better part of my career advocating for inclusive learning environments. Uh, similar to Jesse, I recall at the beginning of my career, I was a sixth grade self-contained reading teacher in South Fulton County in Atlanta. I was alternatively certified and my classroom consisted of students whose demographics have historically been marginalized. So those are those uh, students who are newcomers, multilingual learners, a lot of Black and Latinx students, uh, and students with disabilities, uh, specifically learning and behavioral disorders. And so much of, uh, of my class, many of those sixth graders spent a substantial amount of their time with me outside of the general education environment. And I can't but think about like why this actually needed to be the case. Like they're in sixth grade and they're in a reading class and it needs to be away from their gen ed counterparts most of the day and most of the week. And it honestly is something I still grapple with to this day. And it cements why I show up in this work in the way that I do. Yeah, thank you both so much for sharing that. There's a lot of research that points to educational inequity for students of color, students from low-income backgrounds, students with disabilities. And we also know that when we're talking about special education and inclusion, a lot of schools and a lot of districts are doing it right now. So why do we have to have this conversation explicitly? You know, isn't inclusive education happening already? Most districts have adopted an inclusion model where students with disabilities are taught alongside their peers. There's actually a report that's produced by NCLD on significant disproportionality in special education. And it found that only a third of Black students with disabilities spend that much time in the general education setting as compared to 55% of white students, right? Additionally, in a report also produced by NCLD on helping educators unlock the power of students who learn differently. They highlighted the huge disparities in achievement for fourth and eighth graders with disabilities. They found that 91% of fourth graders and 96% of eighth graders with learning disabilities are not proficient in math, right? So 91% and 96% of our students are not proficient in math. Similarly, when we think about reading, 97% of fourth graders and 96% of eighth graders with learning disabilities are not proficient in reading. And so we see a compounded effect on students with disabilities of color. Specifically, Black students with disabilities have a gap of about 20 points on NAEP scores between their white peers. And Black students with IEPs are four times as likely to be suspended as compared to their white counterparts. So if we're thinking about the original question posed, is inclusive education already happening? We have to dismantle this notion that just because kids with disabilities are integrated into the general education environment, it does not necessarily mean that they are receiving inclusive education. At Blue Engine, we know this and we know this very, very well. We work with partners from various parts of the country, New York, L.A., New Orleans, D.C., and Massachusetts, shameless plug, who are also all grappling with the same notion, right? How do we create and support learning environments that are places where all kids are able to thrive? We work with educators at all levels of the system. So that's in the classroom, at the school level, and at the district level to address this issue. And I like to think that we're making some strides like towards actualizing that vision. Jesse, I'd love to know what you think here. You've been here, our veteran with Blue Engine. Yeah, what I thought of when I was listening, I mean, 
I loved all the data. <laughs> I feel like we're a very data-driven organization. But what I thought about when I heard you saying, citing all the research, Tiff, was like, if I go like all the way back to like 22-year-old me learning to teach, there was this saying that a lot of us learned, like, if students didn't learn it, you didn't teach it. It's really simple, but it's stuck with me today. So regardless of what people think is happening, let's look at the outcomes. It's not happening. It's not happening. And I think a lot of it is because inclusion is so much bigger than just integrating students into a learning environment. And if we haven't intentionally made those changes to the environment, to the supports we put in place, to how we're using the human capital which is, you know, where we often focus in. We What we see is like self-contained happening in the general education setting because you have your content teacher teaching kids without IEPs and you have your special educator teaching. Like that's that's not inclusion. That That's self-contained just happening in in four different walls. And so I, I just go back to that saying. And then it's, you know, what, what else is alarming is if 50% of our general education teachers nationally tell us that they don't believe students with disabilities can be successful with grade level rigor, our classrooms are not inclusive spaces. So it's not happening. And what's funny about what Tiffany said around, like, hypothetically, if we interviewed 10 system leaders, well, she's interviewed 20 this year. And so it's not hypothetical. There are different responses. Our leaders of special education are frustrated because they're feeling like they don't have an equal voice at the table and they know how important this work is. And so, yeah, no, it's not. Um, but, but I think our work proves that it can with intentionality. Yeah. I mean, we know that there are many different definitions of inclusion and many dif different definitions of what is an inclusive space or an inclusive classroom, which kind of lends to the question of like, what would we need? What enabling conditions, like what would we need to have present to really kind of, you know, bring this vision, bring everybody kind of on board to the same vision or to, to help address these gaps, right? You know, 50% of teachers, like you said, like don't believe that special education students can achieve it at grade level rigor. So we're familiar with the conditions. We're familiar with kind of what's happening now. What do you believe we need in our system in order to, you know, start to impact change or address some of this? Yeah, I'm actually low-key giddy about this. And Jesse will tell you this. This is actually one of my most favorite things to talk about in the discussion of inclusion or inclusive practices, this idea of enabling conditions. I think we have to go back to this mental model of inclusion being a place, like right, versus a systemic approach, right? In order, <laughs> right? <laughs> See, right there, that's some of like the implicit sort of like ingrained, you know, ways of thinking, yeah. right? I mean, I've been an educator. I've been doing this work and I still do sometimes think of it as like, it's a, it's a physical yeah, thing. Go to it's the inclusion place. classroom. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. So like in order to have like a school or a classroom environment that is actually inclusive and prepared to attend to the various learning needs of every learner, like not even just the ones that are have identified disabilities or are learning English as a new language, the system around that classroom, the school or district actually has to work together very, very well to produce that. Um, it's incredibly difficult, however, to dismantle a mental model when uh, general educators receive like little to no training on what it means to support diverse learners. 
and hold those limiting beliefs about themselves as educators and of the students who are in their classroom, right? So Jesse uh, alluded to like the 50% of our educators not believing that students with IEPs or with disabilities are able to access grade level content and rigor. There's also this belief of like, whether or not me as the special as the general educator feels well prepared to even get you to that place. And I'll I'll pepper in some more data points again. NCLD is one of my favorite organizations. And they also um, again conducted a study on understanding teacher mindsets and found that only 17% of the teachers that they surveyed felt very well prepared to teach students with mild to moderate learning disabilities. We elevated a little bit earlier that like 70% of students with disabilities. Um, are served through special education in the general education setting. Um, so if 70% of those kiddos are included right, in the inclusion environment, uh, but only 17% of teachers actually feel even well-prepared to teach them, that signals to me like a gap in the conditions that are in place to actualize inclusive education. So for me, the, the, this current reality makes it incredibly challenging to adopt change. Our teachers are facilitating instruction um, with students, for students with disabilities, uh, yet they don't have access to high quality professional development that provides tangible solutions for addressing manifestations of disability, right? Like, so uh, how do I teach a kiddo in my sixth grade math class who has dyscalculia, which is a math disability? Or how do I teach a kiddo in my class who has an auditory processing disorder or deficit? And my primary mode of facilitating is through talking at kids, right? <laughs> school leaders, uh, I think there's also a gap in school leaders who are knowledgeable about knowledgeable about special education um, or can even support their teachers in this area. I think about school leaders being situated as like the instructional lead of the building. And if we're tasking teachers with the responsibility of being able to teach to all, but not building up the professional development or the support around the teacher, like your leader doesn't have it. Uh, we're hiring instructional coaches and they're mostly content specific or content focused and don't have that expertise or, or ability to flex the muscle in teaching towards learner variability. Who provides that training or support for teachers to do their job well or meet that moment? To say it more succinctly, I think there's a few enabling conditions that I think are absolutely critical to kind of start as a jumping post for, for having this conversation about inclusive education. I think it begins with like inclusive investment, and that's from a range of stakeholders, not just in the building, that's looping in parents, right? We talk about, there's, when we talk about special education, and I like what Jesse mentioned earlier of like, we see special education as something that is so unique and special and different. My favorite phrase is the cerulean. You guys remember that? It was a Crayola color. Cerulean colored unicorn. We see special education as the thing that somebody else with this magical wand is going to come in and do and fix. And so we also have this mental model that that means it has to be away from the general education environment. So when we talk about inclusive investment, we have to also bring parents along uh, in this belief that inclusion is also important. I think there's also a critical need to, to have a visioning um, that, start, that starts at the top at the district level and is communicated as a priority and not an initiative, right? There's a difference. So a lot of times we see like, we have an inclusion initiative and it's a two-year pilot that we're going to try in three schools here and four schools there. And it isn't really like steeped in this idea or the culture of the district. When you have a vision, you also have to have goals for it, right? You have to like 
we what we measure what what's the saying? I forget the name of the saying, but it, it talks about like the importance of us setting goals and like holding ourselves accountable to things that we say are important. Um, and I think we need to have those districts need to have those in place. Schools need to have those in place. There's also this very real tension between strategic staffing and budgeting and funding. I would love to be able to wave a magic wand and give everyone infinite number of teachers with infinite amount of time for planning. That's not the case. So like your districts have to plan for that. They have to account for that in their funding and their staffing models. IEP alignment. And then lastly, like district data systems that are in place to inform the practice and let us know what's working well and where. Um, and in order to shift that behavior that we're going to have to really be honest with ourselves as professionals and as a system, um, if we actually have the skills, mindsets and knowledge to adopt the behaviors that create change. Yeah. Aurora, you're getting a taste of what it's like to be in space every day with Tiffany and me. Like, we, <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, <laughs> taking so much control from me as like a, a talkative extrovert, not to jump yeah. in and be like, yeah. Yeah, 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 no, <laughs> but, totally, um, totally. It, it's all really, really resonating with me. But yeah, I mean, Jesse, give us some of your perspective, yeah. your, your take on it. No, I I mean, Tiffany and I talk about this stuff all the time. So everything she said times 100, I will just zoom us out and like remind us sometimes when, you know, we're having a hard day at Blue Engine or I'm having a hard day or the team like, we're like, why is this so hard? It shouldn't be this hard. We have to remind ourselves that our public education system was, one, designed for a solo teacher. So when we're talking about co-teaching, like it, it square peg round, like wasn't set up that way. Our system was also designed at a time when not all students had the right to education. And so there's so much legacy in the in the way that things were initially set up that we're still trying to untangle. So when things are hard, you have to ask yourself, like, what are the mental models at play? What are the policies? What are the incentives? Because the system's working the way it was it's supposed to, right? It doesn't mean it's right or it's equitable, but it's working the way it's set up. So where in there are there incentives, policies, mental models that are leading to, to the disparity in outcomes that that you know we've been talking about. And so three things that I'll say that I think a lot about, I, I lead our partnership development work, I talk to system leaders all the time, that system-wide vision and expectations that Tiff mentioned is really important. If you talk to a school leader, they'll tell you, I'm just trying to figure this out for myself. Like no one's telling me how to do this. Okay. So number one. Number two, structures at a school level have to um, support inclusive practices. We silo our support of educators, right? We departmentalize so that, you know, our, our learning specialists and our content specialists are not engaging in shared professional learning. We silo. And, you know, the support and accountability for uh, effector, effective teacher collaboration is missing, right? I was observed and evaluated as a solo teacher, even though I was co-teaching. I never got feedback on how to collaborate. When it went well, when it goes well, we often say, wow, it's so lucky those two teachers jive. Instead of saying, this is part of the job description. This is the professional expectation because our students deserve it. Like, it's a, you don't get to say, you know, you don't, 
you don't like this person or, you know, you don't want to do that. You're like, that is part of the job. And so we have mental models that we need to unpack and it shouldn't be happenstance. But the, the last thing I'll say is like being a part of a really effective inclusion team can change the experience fundamentally of teaching. Like we are, ti- our teacher workforce is young, they're tired. And so there are a lot of positive benefits for teachers as well that I think don't get talked about enough. Yeah, I mean, you're already kind of leading me to my to my next train of thought, which is this idea of the structure and model that our, you know, our current American public school system exists in is not designed to address the needs of all learners. So when we look a little bit further back, maybe when, you know, not the age of our data, but maybe when we were coming up in school, you know, the model was a single educator and a class of 30 kids, and that was the way it went. And then you know, we go a little bit, we've evolved a little bit past that where now co-teaching is is an expectation. But at least in my experience, and I'm sure many people listening can relate, co-teaching, like you said, Jesse, is like, throw these two teachers together and co-teach, figure it out. You too. You know, you're co-teachers now. There's There's like very little kind of like preparation around there, which is what a uh, an organization like Blue Engine, which is why I'm so glad that we're talking to you folks today, you know, that's what that's your goal. You support this, you know, uh, implementation of effective collaboration and co-teaching. So I want to also help our listeners understand and help me understand, too, what are some of the barriers to, to good and effective co-teaching, right? We know what it looks like when it, when the teachers are jiving and it's going great, but what is in our way? What what are the barriers that, that are not allowing us to fully like realize this vision? Yeah. So many barriers. Um, I spoke to some of them. I'm going to start at the highest level, which is um, sometimes we don't even get to engage in a dialogue about that question, Aurora, because we, we get some pushback. So I want to address that first. And then I want to talk a little bit more about like some of the barriers that like we really have uh, the control over. So first of all, if we're all on the same page that this one to 30 teacher model, the way that we're currently living out inclusion in a lot of spaces is still creating disproportionality. You know, students of color are more likely to be identified for special education at higher rates, more likely to be suspended um, or expelled than their white peers, more likely to be placed in restrictive environments. You know, this is our current reality and we're, we're on track to perpetuate that if we don't slow down to reconsider that we need a new path forward. And I bring that up when you ask about barriers to co-teaching because one of the things that comes up before even talking about how co-teaching can be improved is, you know, we often get told, well, I can't afford that for every classroom or I can't afford that for every school in my district. So like I can't talk about co-teaching right now. And so before we get into like barriers on co-teaching, I just want to talk about equity for a minute. I, you know, my response to that is it makes sense. I have a limited budget at Blue Engine too. Where are we putting our resources? Like resources are not infinite. And so if you do have resources, I want to talk about, you know, equity means that people get what they need. Not everyone gets the same thing. And so if you do have the ability to do this somewhere, let's go back to that disproportionality and put those co-teaching resources where they are most needed based on the data that is loud and clear. So if you can't do it everywhere, it doesn't mean that you can't do some of it in service of educational 
equity. And, you know, I'm going to let Tiffany speak a little bit more about the barriers and specifically what we've learned about them and why our programming is designed to address that. Because, you know, we, we, we have services designed to ensure that um, student achievement is being accelerated through effective co-teaching. Um, and we believe that all co-teachers should be well prepared to universally design instruction that's accessible to all students. But Tiff, talk a little bit more about the specific barriers. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. I think this also builds on the question that we were talking about earlier in terms of enabling conditions. So I think it's kind of goes really, really uh, well hand in hand together. There's like a combination of issues related to mindset, preparedness, training, and and the reality, staffing, time, and resources, like are all barriers. Like we can align and agree up there. But at Blue Engine, like as a learning organization, we're positioning ourselves uh, to meet classrooms, schools, and systems exactly where they're where they are at. Um, and for some, they are already implementing a co-teaching model and need to effectively support both teachers to implement that model effectively. Uh, some are contemplating using a co-teaching model and just need some support in developing some of the enabling conditions to make it uh, truly an, an effective situation. Um, and then there are others that are just like incredibly unfamiliar or have like major barriers to implementing co-teaching giving their current structure, right? So we support with ways to increase the collaboration amongst all of the educators in the building um, and then ensuring all teachers have the skill set to support uh, diverse learners. In our case at Blue Engine, we focus on supporting, again, classrooms and school systems and implementing co-teaching. And we work across a range of school models, all with a single focus on evolving their current approach to inclusion, uh, specifically for students of color and emerging um, language learners. So through our work, uh, we've come to learn that there that there are a few uh, barriers that rise to the top. First being mindsets, right? So developing mindsets that all teachers are responsible uh, for uh, their various learning needs in the classroom. So it's not my kids, your kids, all of our kids. The skills and training that I alluded to before, uh, developing the knowledge and the skills and educators so that they feel like they have the true ability to adapt instruction and work in collaboration with others to meet the various learning needs of kids in their classroom and ensuring that they're not reducing uh, the rigor while doing so, right? There's this constant tension of balancing access with rigor. And then lastly, we support in the ways of like thinking about school leader development, because I pointed to this earlier. It's, it's really critical, um, if not the school leader, but also an instructional lead at the building can support the, the teachers or the other instructional aides in the building around what it means to support students or with disabilities or with learning differences as well. Um, so school leader development is an absolutely critical lever um, to understand how to promote and sustain inclusive practice. Yeah, thank you both so much for that. I mean, that's one of the great things about working with different organizations with different areas of expertise and look at things through a different lens, right? Which is something that I love about Blue Engine is that you're looking at you know, co-teaching and effective models through the lens of, let's talk about race, power, and privilege. Let's talk about, you know, barriers and ways to move forward, which is, you know, sort of where I always kind of like to see our conversation. We've talked a lot about the barriers, the issues, and, you know, we all know things that are going on right now in the world of education. There's, there's so many conversations and topics about the struggles, the challenges. So with all of that going on, why now? Why is now the right time to push forward and and move forward and, you know, bring special education to the forefront? 
you know, how do we move forward and and why why now? It should have always been now, like the now, you know, yeah. last week, one month ago, one year, like now is the time. It's always been the time, but let, let's do it. Oh, Aurora. So one of the things that that I, I wholeheartedly believe and I feel like Tiffany is always saying it for the people in the back, but like diversity is the norm. Right. And um, I and I experienced that through my own, you know, understanding of what it means to be the one in five, though not having a formalized, formally diagnosed, you know, learning disability, like diversity is the norm. And I feel like people are more ready for that conversation coming out of interrupted schooling with the pandemic and acknowledging that um, students are in such different places, though many students always have been. It just feels like there's an openness to that conversation and there's an openness to the idea that we are all we all need to be prepared, more prepared than we've ever been as educators to be able to meet the unique learning needs of students. So even though I've always felt like now is the time, now is really the time because we're ready for it. And, you know, we are all special educators. We need to be. If we believe that diversity is the norm, we all need to see ourselves in that way. All students are our students. We're all special educators. We all need to know the content. And that's what I believe. And the proof is in the pudding. And I wish, you know, this is a, I wish I could show you examples of the incredible work our partners are doing, but they are the living proof of what happens when this goes well. Tiffany can speak to some of the, the results that our partners are having when they focus on this work. Um, but that is why I feel so strongly now is the time. Um, now is the time. Tiff, what do you think? Yeah, this is, thanks so much. I, or, uh, I really appreciate this conversation that we've been having. I, it made me think back a couple of weeks ago, maybe end of January or so now, I, um, I spoke at a conference on race, power, and privilege in special education. And I shared with the group that I was facilitating with something that I think is so fitting here. If the question is like, why this and why now? I think I want folks to, listening to consider this. Uh, in 1954, the United States Supreme Court in Brown v. Board of Education found that separate facilities are inherently unequal, right? So this landmark case is regarded as like the pivotal point in the American public education system. And it led to the integration of schools nationwide. And it was deemed like, and, and in that, it was deemed that the separation of students on the basis of race as unconstitutional. Uh, what was not protected, however, in that ruling was the separation of students on the basis of disability, right? And so we think about that in 1954. So Blacks, and, and since then, Black students have been overrepresented in special education since then, right? And in the office of, in the U.S. Office of um, Civil Rights, first started to sample school districts in around 1968, there's over literally 50 years of documented persistent disparity and inequity perpetuated against students who lay at the intersection of race and ability. So if a question is like, why now? I'm like, it's it's way past time to center this work. It like the time is absolutely now. It was 1954. Yeah. Like that yeah. was that was now. 1954. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then and, and then the and OCR started to collect the data on it in 1968. So there's like we have data since 1968 that like atrocities have been perpetuated against like body black and brown bodies um who lay at the inter intersection of race and disability for well over 50 years so like i i've always like astounded by that data point and, and so when we think about like how 
why is it important? Why now? I think some when I look at the work of our, our partners, I'm always like blown away. Like Blue Engine, we've been chipping away at this and we have so many positive um data points to 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 rely on 92% of teachers after working with blue engine agree that all of their students can understand challenging concepts compared to 50% of that uh, of teachers nationally, right? So we talked about those 50% of teachers earlier feeling prepared. 92%, which I think is absolutely incredible of the teachers that after working with blue engine say this. 82% of blue engine teachers report that they feel confident in their ability to, to teach diverse learners, right? Earlier, I mentioned that only 17% of teachers surveyed by NCLD felt this. 82%, I'm gonna say that again for the people in the back, 82% of teachers who work with Blue Engine coaches believe this. And the last data point I'll leave you with is like this idea of like 92% of the teachers who work with us report feeling confident in their ability to differentiate instruction to reach students at different levels in their classroom. And so I think like the proof is in the pudding and that, that like this is possible. We can change the tie. We can cultivate mindsets. We can give you the skill sets and the knowledge to be able to do this well. I think there just has to be a paired sense of urgency all around for sure. Yeah, I really like that. I give a, can I jump in to give a shout out here? Oh, I mean, shout outs. <laughs> I look at data all the time. I'm so deeply proud of that data. But just like shout out all day long to the teachers who under like extraordinary circumstances are still showing up every day, pushing their own mindsets and and shifting practice in service of students. So shout out to our teachers. Yeah. And shout out to the Blue Engine coaches. I mean, they, oh, yeah. we have some great people on staff. Yeah, yeah the, we best. Have the best, the best. <laughs> Thank you, because that is, I mean, the the numbers are astounding. I mean, it's it goes to show that the effort is there, the will or the, the desire is there, right? The will is there, the you know, people don't be people don't become teachers and enter this profession to do a bad job. Absolutely right? not. But there's sometimes this national kind of narrative. Sometimes there's like this weird kind of vibe of like teachers are doing a bad job because they're X, Y, Z. And I think that it shows that it, you don't go into this this field to because you don't care. Absolutely. But the system is is often back against you as a student, as a teacher, as a parent, yep. as an administrator. So, you know, this this conversation today is just a small kind of, you know, peek into like the the world of, of addressing but addressing this disparity. And I think at least talking about it or listening to to it is a is a great kind of first step at least. And the work that y'all are doing at, at Blue Engine is is just incredible. So it's wonderful to have you as ELA partners. So before we go, if somebody's listening and they're like, wow, Blue Engine, that sounds amazing. I want to be part of that 92% or I want my my school to be part of that 92%. Um, what can people do to get involved, stay involved, connect with y'all? Yeah. Follow us on LinkedIn. That's where we share. It's our primary vehicle for sharing content. But reach out to us. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Connect with Tiff at LinkedIn. You can find us easily there. Email me. Email Tiff. Jesse at BlueEngine.org. Tiffany at BlueEngine.org. Or if it's easier to remember, partnerships at BlueEngine.org will also get you a conversation with someone um, as well. But we are excited to connect with others to learn what's working in other spaces. So even if folks aren't thinking about, 
you know, engaging in that way. Uh, we, we, I think I said this last time, we very, we are an organization that is all about teams and collaboration. Like we want to team and we want to collaborate. Complex, you know, problems need complex solutions. So please reach out to us, get connected. Yeah. And I'll just plug for our website if folks wanted to go over there and like just read on the excellent things that we have going on in our models, you can go to blueengine.org. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for joining us today. This was really a fantastic opportunity to talk and pick your brains a little bit. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Aurora. That's it for us today, folks. Thank you to Jesse Brunken and Tiffany Galloway from Blue Engine. I'm Aurora from ELA, and this was a deeper dive with Blue Engine.